Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for our Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by Seam Group. Happy National Safety Month to everyone out there. We're going to let our audience take just a moment to get settled, and we'll begin the presentation in about one minute. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Managing Safety Exposures Associated with Industrial Energized Assets to Prevent Serious Injuries and Fatalities, sponsored by Seam Group. My name is Barry Botino, and I am an Associate Editor with Safety and Health Magazine. I'll be moderating today's event. On behalf of the entire National Safety Council team, we thank you all for joining us today. We'll start the presentation in a couple of minutes, but first I have a few housekeeping items to share with you. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise product or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, just click on the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen, type in your question and press the send button. You can ask your question at any time at all during the presentation. You do not have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as time allows today, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll also receive a link in our post event email. All audience members will also receive a resource from our sponsor today in that post-event email, which is a white paper that Seam Group has published on today's topic. Now let's introduce our presenters. With us today are Derek Hale and Colin Duncan of Seam Group. Derek is an electrical safety instructor and a lead field analyst. He works with clients to create robust and helpful procedures policies, and strategies that guide them towards safety success. As the CEO of Seam Group, Colin is responsible for overseeing global business operations and activities. That includes designing and implementing strategies to fully integrate asset safety, reliability, and maintenance. Again, we thank you all for tuning into our presentation today. And Colin, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Let me try that again. Thank you very much, Barry, and um, 
Now, how many times we've all done the mute thing by mistake? So uh, welcome, everybody. We are going to run this without video. It helps with bandwidth. Um, and um, thank you all for, for joining us. Um, I'd like to really start off by um, framing the whole discussion around uh, serious injury and fatality prevention. Um, and, you know, first of all, really by sharing with you scene groups experience um, over many years and, and a, a lot of work uh, on energized assets, uh, the content that Derek and I are sharing today is really a function of the collective knowledge uh, of the team here at Scene Group. I do want to, you know, Barry made the point about you know, nothing commercial in here. I do want to be clear. We don't, as an organization, consult on serious injury and fatality prevention. We do have services that are you know, deeply involved in the prevention of risk, uh, prevention of injury in the workplace. But our focus here today is really sharing our learning, sharing our experience, and hopefully providing a new, slightly different perspective on how we go after uh, the reduction of fatal and serious injury events. Uh, at Seam Group, we work on over one and a half million energized assets annually. Uh, a number of our technicians are doing high risk, high risk work on a day-to-day -day basis. So we understand the issues very well and we have a broad data set to help us really uh, gain some insight into those issues. So let me just sort of jump in with kind of, first of all, I guess, you know, framing the issue itself. First of all, you'll notice uh, throughout the presentation, we will talk about fatal and serious injuries. Uh, sometimes in the safety world over recent years, people have used the uh, abbreviation SIF, serious injury and fatality. Um, you'll also see us use fatalities and serious injuries. It may be semantics. I think philosophically, we, we choose to tackle the fatal events before the serious injuries. Um, and that's sort of really a thinking lifted from our friends at ORC over the years. Um, yeah, the most important thing here is to understand that um, whilst we uh, have made progress in workplace safety over the last 20 to 30 years, tragically, the data when it comes to fatalities in the workplace would tell us we haven't made enough progress. Uh, anybody in the safety world who's you know, looked at this data will be familiar with it. Um, sadly, the story is much the same today as it was 10 years ago. And, you know, the reality is that for every life, uh, for every fatality, we see significantly more life-altering injuries, likely by a factor of 10. So, you know, that is somewhere in the order of 50,000 workers in the U.S. alone each year who are not going home the way they arrived at work. And... As a colleague of mine has you know, sort of said on many occasions, the reality is we haven't found any new ways to kill people or cause them to be permanently uh, injured. And um, you know, that, that realization, there's no new ways of getting people seriously hurt and killed in the workplace, and yet we're not making progress, should really be focus point number one for us as safety professionals. Um, I would also say, you know, I, I learned oh, about 10 years ago now, I had the very uh, humbling experience of working live on uh, in a meeting room in Scandinavia for a client looking at 34 fatal events 
that they had experienced in their business over the previous seven years. Uh, looking at that data, looking at each of those individual events, the realization of an individual uh, or on two or three occasions, uh, uh, several individuals being fatally injured in events, it's something one never, never forgets. It's also a reminder that fresh eyes on uh, broad sets of data uh, does allow us to find new ways of, of looking at seemingly unrelated events. And that's really my way of getting to the, that's what we're trying to speak to uh, today in this webinar, uh, and indeed in the, in the white paper that um, Barry mentioned earlier. Um, so we, we firmly believe that it's necessary to take a slightly different approach here. And whilst you might argue that the pivot here isn't especially radical, the pivot being to focus on energy in the workplace um, rather than focus on incidents or events, um, I do think it's an important pivot. And it's an important pivot because the reality is that for the better part of the last three decades, I, I believe that as, as, as a safety, as a profession, we've allowed things like you know, pyramids, rate management, worker behavior, to allow us to get focused on some of the wrong things. And what we really need to do is, is start with an unbiased focus on risk, properly assessed and properly managed. You know, is there a risk that all of our acquired knowledge, all of the complex systems, management systems and, and rules and procedures we've built might actually cause us to miss the essence of our risk elimination and mitigation? risk the essence of how to get after these serious injuries and fatalities. And in that context, do we do enough to educate from top to bottom on a simple way to understand the thing that might cause harm, which is fundamentally the energy in our systems, in our assets, in our workplaces. And it's interesting to me when you look at much of what has been published over the last decade, on fatal and serious injury events and their prevention, what one tends to see is a layering uh, based on existing approaches rather than something that takes a fresh approach at the issue. So I hope that as you go through the next uh, 40 minutes or so, we offer something that might be a different angle, a different way of looking at what is clearly a pervasive problem. As we look at the legacy, the history, and I'm going to keep this section pretty short. There are, you know, there are a number of folks who've written about the problems of the, uh, you know, legacy thinking here, um, whether it's Heinrich, Bird, you know, the, you could argue that there was a, a core premise for tackling incident and injury causation that really drove thinking a very particular direction. And it really is the anchor for a lot of modern day safety programs, but unfortunately it is fundamentally flawed. And I'm not gonna expand in great detail on why it's flawed. I think there are, I'm happy to provide references after this webinar. There is some really good material written about the flaws in, in, in these legacy models and legacy thinking including a, a piece that I think is one of the better written pieces and may have a bias here, but written by two of my old team at BST, Don Martin and Alison Black. 
Uh, and as I say, happy to provide any, any of those references uh, after the webinar. What I do want to say is that, you know, Heinrich and Bird were correct in that a frontal assault on mishaps could have a knock-on effect on some of the more serious ones. That is reasonably accurate as a statement, but their theory of causation as it relates to major injury is inherently flawed. And I was CEO of BST when we started a research group um, just over 10 years ago now with our good friends at ORCHSC with an initial cadre of seven organizations where we sought to better understand the underlying dynamics behind serious injury and fatality events. The initial cadre of seven organizations actually subsequently grew to over 35 and provided a rich vein of data to better understand uh, incident causation. And at the core, what we found that was whilst the relationship varied depending on the work environment, most minor incidents have relatively little potential for fatal or life-altering injury. And I, yeah, I don't need to belabor the point, but I think we've all heard the stories of facilities that went two, three, four years without a recordable, only to have suddenly out of nowhere, apparently, a fatality or indeed several. Um, you know, at one level, we can think about, you know, Deepwater Horizon as, as being a prime case study into the problem of getting very focused on your, your incident and case management and missing the systemic risk. But perhaps, you know, a simpler way of looking at it, I remember getting a phone call one day, um, probably about eight, nine years ago now, from a chemical client I'd been working with for a number of years. Um, they had been working to, you know, really make some systemic improvements um, across their operation. And in one particular facility, um, I received a phone call from the, the safety manager for the division. This was a facility they'd not long since acquired. Um, they'd had three serious incidents in the prior month after apparently three years with nothing at all. And rather than reacting to the incident, I think the only question we should ask in that situation is, was the underlying cause there all, all along, or did it only just suddenly emerge? And of course, you know, as safety professionals, when we ask that question, we, we, we kind of know it's self-serving, right? We know that the reality is in almost all cases, we find that the answer is it was always there. It just needed the right set of predetermined conditions to align for the worst possible outcome to actually occur. And so, we have to think about the problem differently. That's very much where the research has come from. And you know, I think we've learned something from that research. It's now time to pivot to different ways of thinking about the solution. And, excuse me, you know, to that point, I do wanna highlight something that is inherently problematic in understanding this issue. You know, this slide speaks to the challenge of two seemingly uh, similar events at first pass. Both incidents are recordable. They require a similar, similar number of days away from work. However, when it comes to the fundamental difference between the two, if we think about energy as a way of evaluating the extent to which 
those incidents were different, we find that clearly one incident is significantly different to the other. And this problem of how we measure and how we classify, I think, is, is well recognized in the safety world. What's perhaps problematic is that we haven't really made progress over the course of the last decade. Um, you know, we still have no common framework for serious injury and fatality reporting. Yes, OSHA has a severe injury reporting framework, but, you know, since 2015, I think that was implemented in 2015. Um, OSHA themselves think that only about 50% of those severe incidents are reported. And it's only covering a small, I think it uh, covers about 60% of states nationally. Um, a lot of states who have their own uh, OSHA uh, framework, you know, they're reporting it differently. So we've got real problems with getting visibility to the data. It's also interesting to me, if you happen to go into the OSHA website and look for uh, fatality and serious injury prevention, look for data, look for anything that advises on intervention strategies. Still at this point, there is nothing on the OSHA website. There aren't publicly available solutions, interventions, methodologies for addressing this challenge. So we, we see the data uh, causes noise. The data causes to, to look at the wrong, uh, the wrong issues, the wrong problems. And fundamentally, if we had reported these two incidents, not based on the outcome, the way we might think about it in our 300 log, but rather thinking about it in the context of total available energy, we might see some really quite radically different patterns in our data. And that really is fundamentally our thinking about what has to change here and what we do going forward. So we have a data challenge. Um, you know, the data is lacking or it's confusing. Uh, and most companies don't really have an effective way to bridge the data gap. Uh, I do think that a focus on fatal events is way too narrow and interestingly may actually have, have some of the same problem of co-mingling that we talked about earlier. Um, if instead we orient towards the energy, we might actually establish a program that is structured in a way to gather the data differently. And that might allow us to design an intervention program that more effectively focuses on the risk and you know, if we ask ourselves, do we have a risk-based energy assessment process? And is that at the heart of how we tackle fatal and serious injury prevention? So in the interest of keeping us moving along here, you know, there are, I think, some really good um, summary reports that capture a lot of these issues. Um, I'll speak directly here to uh, friends at the Campbell Institute, which of course is part of the uh, National Safety Council, uh, and a really excellent paper um, they published uh, back in 2018. Uh, as a good reference point for some of these issues, uh, indeed some of the reading references and background data, I will argue with the greatest respect to my friends at Campbell, that what we still didn't get to in that paper was a clear path to intervention. Uh, and as I said earlier, I hope what we're offering here today is some sense of how we might tackle in an intervention that really gets after a structured and disciplined approach. And that is because at the heart of it, um, 
you know, a lot of what we ultimately find uh, in terms of causation is really quite predictable. And if we look at, you know, many of the keys to foreseeing and heading off serious incidents, we tend to find that at its heart, there's some basic high school physics. And this, you know, at one level is a fairly straightforward example, but we could look at multiple different scenario where we can think through the risk and the potential outcome based on energy. Uh, in this example, a 200 pound worker climbs to the fourth floor of a processing facility. At 60 feet above the plant floor, his or her body, probably a his, uh, contains about 16,000 joules of potential energy. So if the safeguards that are in place fail, that worker hits concrete at 42 miles an hour. And my point being here that we can calculate the energy, we can calculate the energy potential, and that helps us find a very clear path towards the likely outcome. And in amongst all of this, also recognizing that at its heart, we should understand that any safety system that is designed to assume that people don't make mistakes is designed to assume that it will fail as a system. And I'll speak more about that in a moment. So that's, you know, gravity can be one uh, source of energy. Most safety professionals are fairly well schooled in the different types of energy, be it thermal, electrical, nuclear, uh, you know, gravitational, we talked about hydraulic, and long, we understand the different types of energy. The question I would have for each of you is, do we have the level of education and awareness of both energy, where it is, what happens when it's released, what the consequences are, do we have that knowledge at our senior operations management level, at our mid-management level, level, supervisory level, frontline level? And I say that not because the solution here is about teaching people about energy, though it will certainly help, but because you can't design a system if people don't understand what's sitting inside of that system. And the thing that gets people hurt is the loss of control of energy when it interacts with human beings. You know? So we really want to focus on understanding that energy, understanding how it's likely to interact with people negatively, and making sure we build a system that really goes after that. One sort of one or two final points, and then I think I'll, I'll hand over to Derek. Um, first of all, um, let's not miss this kind of latent energy. I, I referenced earlier 34 fatal events I uh, was involved in looking at a number of years ago. One of the things that stood out for me were several incidents where there was latent energy built into a system that was uh, perhaps related to geological energy or to adjacent energy sources, uh, underground water wells pressurizing a wall. Sometimes I think we miss the opportunity to analyze more broadly adjacent energies and latent energies uh, and really allow those to inform our thinking about what's going on in the system. Um, Finally, and I referenced this a moment ago, um, the essence of 
our thinking and our approach here is that this energy is about systemic risk and we have to look for a systemic solution. Training people to be aware of energy, it's, not part, it's part of the solution, it's not the solution. Um, those of you who followed recent writings from you know, um, some of the human and organizational performance authors, um, you know, Holnager, uh, Sidney Decker, Tom Conklin, Rob Fisher, you know, have all called out that we really need to get away from focusing on the frontline and worker behavior and really think through a systemic approach. And, and that's what we're really trying to model out here is how do you tackle this issue systemically? Um, and on that note, I'm going to hand over to Derek, who's going to talk you through uh, an overall framework we believe will be effective in, in tackling that issue. Derek. Thank you, Colin, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. And, and at, the, at the risk of jeopardizing the momentum that we've built here, I do want to point out that I I may be uh, taking this webinar in a vehicle, but I assure everybody that it is fully parked. Uh, this is National Safety Month after all. So I uh, just wanted to uh, put that out there as a quick programming note, but uh, let's, uh, let's move on to asking too much of people. So, uh, you know, as we talk about the, uh, the human factors that can pop up uh, in, the, in the workplace, focus on them, it, it surely can uh, you know, help on the injury continuum, drive you past, uh, you know, simple near miss to, uh, you know, a direct hit um, and, you know, an injury, if you will. And that, you know, focusing on the human factors can reduce that. Um, so, so what are we talking about when it comes to the uh, human factors? We're talking about uh, training, right? I'm a, I'm a huge believer in training. I, you know, I like having the, the formal conversations on hazards, potential hazards, uh, how to act accordingly. I am a you know trainer, so I'm kind of bought into that for sure. Uh, reinforcing PPE use, um, engaging in the uh, in the casual day-to-day -day conversations with employees on you know, what they're seeing or, or how they're doing, you know, the course of their job throughout the day, what they what they're witnessing. Uh, but even with all those layers, you know, putting putting the hat on the hat on the hat, uh, you're still relying on the employee to be as sharp Monday you know, mid-morning after coffee and, and all that, and then have that, that sharpness carry all the way through Friday, right? And, you know, relying on that, it's, we could say, oh, yeah, absolutely, I keep my, my head about me the same throughout the week, but, you know, it's tough to say what somebody might be going through when we're talking about the, uh, the human factors. Uh, in 2018, uh, NFPA 70E introduced the, the human factors, uh, so, in their uh, Annex Q, and that, that definitely points to maybe we need to start focusing on uh, what the uh, modes of human error are. Um, and looking at that last uh, bullet point there, uh, you know, preaching to the choir, but PPE only makes us, you know, safe against death, right? The, the goal of PPE is to make sure that you don't die, um, but you still can be in, incredibly hurt. Um, if we can go to the next slide. So when we're looking at the, uh, you know, fatalities, um, obviously fatalities are the, 
the worst of only two possible outcomes. You know, it's not necessarily, um, you know, a a continuum of uh, outcomes that could have uh, could have been affected. Uh, it is the uh, the 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 worst case, right? So when we're talking about the FS side, we're talking about the serious injuries, we're talking about fatalities. Um, you know, if that if that dropping load to, to kind of look at this bullet point here, if the uh, dropping load misses the worker and the worker is uninjured, um, that's you know ideal. That's the the tree falling in the uh, in the forest and somebody maybe hearing it make a noise. But you know, if it hits the worker, it they're they're, they're done for, right? Uh, same with the uh, ammonia pipe burst uh, outside. You know, if it if it happens outside, it's a leak. Maybe we maybe we focused on it. Maybe it's a uh, maybe it's something that we circle back on, talk about. But is it something that we're taking as incredibly seriously as if it were to, you know, act on humans and kill everybody that might be in a in a room if it were to burst inside? Um, so when we're talking about these these potential injuries, these these latent in or these these potential energies rather, and these latent injuries or energies that are stored um, in the workplace, you know, if they're if we have employees near them, that's when we need to start focusing on how can we how can we control that better? And the you know speak the last uh, bullet point there, you know, the, the challenge for the safety leaders is to not only figure out how to downgrade the exposure, you know, and go for that administrative level on the hierarchy of controls, um, but also how to eliminate it and take it all the way to the top of the pyramid, if possible. Um, let's uh, hop over to the next slide. So when we're looking at the uh, improved systems thinking, we're looking more on the design, the reliability, uh, the maintenance and the safeguards um, within the uh, within the uh, the workplace and within the the areas that we have our employees uh, exposed. The planning. Sorry, I think I um, but we need to uh, to look at uh, a design that handles more than just relying on the the human factor and, and relying more on a systems approach that is baked in safety in the workplace as opposed to relying on the employee performance uh, you know as as I said previously you know if we if we have a, a sharp employee on a Monday are they going to react the same way at the end of the day on Friday when they're thinking about the game that's coming up on Sunday or should we more build safety into the process um, and look for more fail-safe designs, look for more engineered solutions, uh, more middle to top of the pyramid uh, as far as the, the engineering, the, the elimination, uh, and, and so on. Uh, if we could pop to the next slide. All right, so let's, uh, we're gonna look at uh, eight steps for uh, FSI prevention, uh, just a, uh, to take in preventing these fatalities or serious injuries. So, um, you know, I, I swear this isn't the, uh, 
uh, the sales pitch part, but uh, you know, we we help clients monitor and maintain over, like it says there, one, one and a half million energized assets. And again, that isn't to, to brag necessarily, but to say that we see a lot of, a lot of stuff across a multitude of, uh, you know, industries and, and different applications. And, uh, you know, the, the, the second bullet point kind of says it all, you know, uh, most have potential to kill, whether it's voltage that can electrocute, um, whether it's air pressure that can push air uh, through the skin or, you know, contaminants through the skin, uh, cause an embolism, um, or, you know, a highly reactive gas like silane that just, you know, loves to blow up when it when given the opportunity to be in the presence of air. So, uh, you know, we, we see a lot. And so uh, here, we're, over the next couple of slides, we're going to go over uh, eight steps that we've sort of distilled it down to when we're talking about a, uh, a systematic or uh, approach to reducing those uh, FSIs. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so first and foremost, you know, where are our energy sources? So uh, what is in your facility that could, worst case scenario, uh, facilitate uh, an FSI? You know, what could, what could act on employees and cause a fatality or serious injury? Um, you know, that, that last bullet point is very important, you know, to me personally, uh, just from my own experience, as far as touring the same facilities and trying to keep an eye out for different hazards um, within the facilities that I was in charge of. Um, but, you know, over time, I found that your eyes really do sort of follow the same path when you're walking through the same facility over time, right? And having a set of fresh eyes always lends a better perspective. It lends a new perspective, uh, you know, not only for different uh, different habits that we may have formed as safety professionals as far as, you know, hey, I came up with electrical safety, so I'm going to check and make sure that there's no knockouts missing in this junction box, or I'm going to make sure that all the all the covers are on these uh, panel boards versus the person that came from, you know, construction, and they're looking for more fall hazards, more, uh, more physical injuries to the employees that are, are related to the, uh, the physical hazards around them as opposed to just electrical hazards. So having that fresh set of eyes, it just lends a different perspective. Uh, next slide. So uh, calibration of energy levels. So here we're talking about that, that energy pyramid again, or that, that risk control hierarchy again. Um, that level two, right? Substitution. So um, I'll be honest, we still have clients that we find that use 120 volt control circuits, right? Um, you still have some areas where they're just not really segregating out the different voltages within control panels that maintenance technicians need to get into on a, on a very regular basis. And so they may be going for a, you know, a small fuse or a small breaker or just a, you know, a little control switch that is by all accounts touch safe, you know, lower than 50 volts, but um, within the panel, all throughout the panel, you still have 480 popping in, 120 popping in. And, you know, that's, that's something that we're seeing that's still very common across the, across industry as a whole. And, you know, that's, that's really low hanging fruit for us because 
there's a good or I, I guess a, a bad history, right, of uh, employees, you know, in different settings and different operational settings, losing fingers um, without control voltage being properly lowered, right? Um, or if there's a lack of control voltage and they're just still trained to manually uh, press in starters, motor starters, um, that can that can have dire consequences. So. Uh, really looking at the energy levels and taking a look at what it is that we're putting our employees in front of and what it is that we actually have in our facilities um, throughout those uh, throughout those day-to-day -day interactions and all those day-to-day -day touch points for the employees. Uh, next slide. So uh, human proximities, right? This can be sort of the, the toughest to determine. Um, if you've had kids, you know, I don't know how much of the, the crowd I'm speaking to here, but uh, you probably know the struggles of baby proofing your home or even if you have a dog and you have to make sure that they're not chewing on everything that they shouldn't be right. Um, you know that's a and, and that's just in a, a place that you've you've made to live in comfortably. Um, and unless you're you know Tim the tool man Taylor you probably don't have 480 volts AC running through your house you probably don't have a you know clean dry air piped through the uh, through your you know kitchen right so uh, now take that stress. Uh, to an industrial facility. So the, the easy starting point for when we're walking through is where are the points of operation? You know, where, where are employees standing? Where are employees working? Where are they manipulating uh, whatever product they have to work on? Control panels, controls, et cetera. Um, from there, where's the path to the, uh, the break room, the path to the bathroom, path to the time clock? So looking at those areas, what are your proximities to hazardous energy within that, you know, the, that path of travel. Um, and that only accounts for normal operations, right? So that's, everything goes well. I go in, I press the buttons, I make the widget, I hit the break room, I go back, I, I hit the restroom. That's a good day. Now, let's talk about if something fouls up in the operation and people have to come in and fix something. Uh, in the past, I've, I've, uh, um, had to assess different wa wastewater treatment plants. And uh, I remember one that was in the Columbus area and there was an aerator basin. And if you know anything about aeration basins, it's, uh, it is one of the biggest hazards in wastewater because if you were to fall into this tank of you know, brown liquid, uh, A, it would be a bad day just from the smell, uh, but also you sink because there are air bubbles uh, throughout the tank and you, your specific gravity just isn't enough to um, give you buoyancy. So you sink. Um, now looking at the at the aeration basins, everything looked great because, you know, there was a guardrail around everything, you know, guardrail, midrail, tow board, everything looked good except for a walkway across the middle with a valve uh, there and no additional guarding for the walkway. Um, and speaking with a, a maintenance technician on site, asking him, hey, what's, what's exact, what exactly is that for? Uh, he told me, oh, well, you know, every once in a while something gets jammed, so we have, to, we have to fiddle with that. So prime example of when everything goes well, when you know, the toilets are flushing right and the wastewater treatment plant is going uh, as swimmingly as a wastewater treatment plant can, uh, everything is wonderful. But once every week or once every couple of weeks, somebody would have to go out there and risk falling into these basins that they would not be able to escape from uh, just to, to wiggle a valve. 
So to put that to your facilities that you're seeing, um, you know, are we are we tracking everywhere that employees can be and not where they should be on a good day? You know, when we're looking at these uh, human proximities. Uh, to the next slide. Modes of failure. So this is a. Uh, this is one that sort of comes with uh, time and, and just seeing a lot of different, you know, failures, uh, you know, quick story. So kind of a fun one, uh, walked client site that had a lot of conveyance, a lot of different conveyors running through the different uh, uh, rooms within this building. And the conveyance was run with a slew of 480 electrical motors, right? Just like most of industry. Uh, some were mounted in a way where the motor was allowed to vibrate, had a little bit of travel, and over time, the conduit bodies that were feeding the uh, wiring into these motors would shake loose and come off. And this wasn't part of their normal PM to even look at this. Um, but if, if left, you know, unchecked, those wires would rub against a sharp metal inlet into the motor body. And uh, the failure here is that, you know, when they, when that motor body wears that insulation, gets to the conductor, it's going to cause a short might even cause an arc flash depending on if multiple wires wear through at the same time or what have you. So if that facility had an arc flash survey and coordination study done, then the breaker upstream should trip, no problem, right? So we have an arc flash potential. Maybe it's not that big because the proper circuit breakers are in place, everything goes well, everything goes according to plan anyway, maybe not well. Um, but let's say this happens in the middle of the night happens on third shift and it's the end of the month and they're trying to meet their metrics so a big part of their conveyance just went down and they're trying to get their job done that night what what do you think is going to happen next you know will they will they find a trip breaker and just try to turn it back on re-energizing that circuit and causing yet another arc flash or are they going to start going down the line and investigating this trip breaker. You know, just different different things to think about as far as what is the worst case scenario that could happen with just something as simple as the vibration on a motor. Uh, to the next slide. Uh, calculating probability. So again, I'm I'm not a I'm not the uh, the, the sales guy necessarily, but uh, when we talk about a third party being important to developing safety strategy, uh, this is it, right? So we've all heard the, I've done this for decades. I've done this a thousand times. Um, and you know, maybe those, maybe those folks that say that have been dancing in between the snowflakes and the blizzard, or maybe they're wrong. Maybe they don't understand different changes that have happened to make something more hazardous in their area. Um, but you know, that's, that's the level of probability calculation that we see in a lot of different, uh, facilities these days. Right. Um, so to, to go to another example from that same exact facility where I was walking with the uh, the conveyance and the uh, the motor bodies, um, you know they they had a lot of cardboard dust accumulating in their facility, so they decided to put in a dust collector, and they were very proud of it, um, and as they should be because it was the it was the right thing to do. And when they installed this dust collector, they placed it in front of a 150 kVA air cooled transformer, and that dust collector just decided to start spewing dust at that transformer um you know everybody was was paying attention to the dust collector couldn't even see the high probability issue happening behind it which was 
uh, you know, potentially combustible dust fouling a, an air-cooled transformer uh, going through the, uh, the vent and potentially uh, causing a, a huge issue, right? So uh, when we talk about probabilities, just, just seeing um, different instances of things throughout industry uh, and, and being able to take a step back and see the, the bigger picture within your facilities is just absolute key. Um, next slide. So here's the pyramid, right? Um, talking about the middle of the hierarchy, right? Uh, talking about engineering, administrative tiers. The, the substitute tier could and should be used. Um, same with the, the elimination, but a lot of times it's not very, uh, well, it, it's not very practical to operations, right? Um, but can we, can we substitute things out? Can we, instead of having high pressure pneumatics throughout the entire facility, Maybe just have a, an air booster placed at the different, uh, different pieces of equipment that require higher uh, air pressure. You know, usually we, uh, we think of this and we jump to like hearing protection or chemical exposure when it comes to administrative controls. And those are valid uses for administrative controls. Um, but let's consider also the, the hazard training, the, the procedures put in place to keep employees safe, right? Uh, even better, let's look at engineering. Um, utilizing lockout tagout, um, you know, installing interlocks, or in the case of uh, control cabinets or MCCs uh, that might get that that high traffic from the maintenance employees that we talked about earlier. Um, let's look at making the control voltage separate from the supply power. You know, making an enclosure for the the transformer at the top of the panel and and segregating that out. Right, using these. Um, you know, these engineered controls to make make safety inherent to the process um, that our employees go through every day without having to worry about the, the human error of it all. Uh, on to the next slide. Uh, inspection and maintenance. So the, the Monday morning quarterback in your injury investigation will always be able to clearly say, oh, we should have done better on this maintenance piece, or we should have looked at this. I don't know why we're not inspecting that. And, and that's great. So, uh, you know, I, <laughs> but, but it's not helpful at the time, right? Um, so identifying points of potential failure, uh, like that conduit body shaking loose from the motor uh, and incorporating that into regular PMs is imperative to staying on the, the left side of that, uh, you know, the pre-incident side of the, the injury spectrum. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what happens when you get that third set of eyes coming through and, uh, and pointing those out. It's actually part of their PM process today. Um, but another preventative item um, you can start on today is just the simple uh, infrared thermography, right? See where you may have some issues down the road, uh, maybe just some plain inefficiencies uh, that need to be addressed. Um, you know, maybe some vibration analysis, um, but all it takes is just a company to you know, come out with an infrared camera take some pictures of panels with the, with the covers off and you have a clear view of, you know, what could potentially happen down the road as opposed to having to deal with that, you know, that person that's always in the investigation process. That's the Monday morning quarterback, right? Uh, next slide. And uh, finally, so uh, involve the front line. You know, this one's huge, probably my favorite, right? Uh, no site inspection to me is complete without speaking to the frontline employees. Uh, these are the people that as a function of time, curiosity, 
uh, you know, dedication, development, uh, they become something of subject matter experts in their area or in their task. And while, you know, you can't necessarily rely on everybody to stay fresh throughout the day, you can absolutely rely on them to have had some pretty valid observations throughout their time within their task, within their role. And, uh, you know, not to harp on the, the benefits of, you know, third-party inspection again, but as a guy going in and conducting these inspections, when I, when I speak to the rank and file production employees away from supervisors, they usually have an idea of some unique hazards in their area that they've noticed or, you know, things that they do that might not be regular tasks, but that they still have to perform as part of their day-to-day um, that they know they shouldn't, but they still bring it up, right? And it's usually to capture this information for a preventive, you know, safety program to make your process better, as opposed to if a serious injury or fatality were to occur and OSHA comes in, what are they going to do? They're going to do the exact same thing. They're going to interview your employees. They're going to have them away from the supervisors and they're going to say, hey, what could be done better? What do you see in your workplace? And the employees are going to have that same information. But instead of that information going into a, a helpful preventative safety program, it's going to be used to build a case against you, right? So with the, uh, with that, we're going to, we're going to uh, put out a, a poll question here and I'm going to uh, turn it back over to, uh, uh, to Colin afterwards. All right, thanks, Derek. Um, we'll give folks another 10 to 15 seconds um, as you let me know when we're good. Um, just interested to see responses to the question. Okay, so the inspection list is gray and changing depending on what we find. 60%, we generally have only have time to keep up with basic PM. So people are making good progress, which is which is fantastic. I, I you know, it would be fascinating to dive more deeply into this question. As Derek spoke to, I, you know, philosophically as an organization, based on what we've seen, we think a significant part of the solution to the challenge of fatalities and serious injuries is in actually the integration of disciplines. Um, and, you know, thanks, I think we can close that now. And let me just kind of bring some themes together here. So we saw over the last uh, 20 or 30 minutes, um, you know, this eight step model, and I'm, I'm not gonna kind of dive in detail here to review other than to say, we firmly believe there is a, a clear path here that is both risk-based, oriented in understanding energy, the sources of energy, uh, where your energies reside in the facility, uh, how it might be released and what the consequences can be. And that's really at the heart of this eight-step model, locating it, calibrating on the energy levels, understanding um, 
as, as, as uh, Derek put it, human proximities, you know, points of operation, uh, the reality of how people do the work, not the way the work was necessarily planned. So, you know, normal operation versus abnormal operation, we've got to consider all eventualities. Understanding the modes of failure, what, you know, what might happen, uh, how does that play out, what are the consequences? And then really from there, understanding clearly probability and probabilistic analysis. And look, at one level, I realize you could look at this whole presentation and say, Colin, uh, this isn't really new. This is about taking a risk-based approach. It's about uh, having a systemic model. Uh, it's about really you know, understanding probability and risk and managing it accordingly. And yes, it is. Um, but you know, I, I'm sometimes reminded, if you go back and read the work of uh, you know, Kletz of James Reason, some of the early authors in safety of, of, of you know, 30 some years ago now, and, and look at what we have seen happening in the world of safety over the last decade. I think sometimes we do well to take, take a step back and get to the root of our discipline, which has to be risk-based. And it has to be about addressing high-risk scenarios systemically and not having your uh, primary defense mechanism be people doing the work as intended and not making mistakes, okay? Um, and so we wanna focus on getting after, I mean, at the middle of the hierarchy controls, I mean, I'd, I'd actually argue, you know, ultimately our goal is to eliminate, um, substitute as much as we can. Uh, and in doing that, we have to have the people who understand the work really engaging with us to ensure that we understand the risk involved in that work. Optimizing our inspection and PM regimens and involving the people who have their hands on the tools, right? And there's a general truism that if we give the folks doing the work the right knowledge of the risk of the energy and the systems and the equipment they're working with, on a day-to-day -day basis, they'll do a pretty good job of letting you know what could go wrong and where it's likely to go wrong. However, that's got to be tackled systemically. <clears throat> and that really is at the core of our philosophy. Um, and then using what we learn systemically to design better engineering. And I just, you know, in passing, want to give you one good example of that. Uh, you know, at Scene Group, um, we, you know, one of our areas of specialism is our flash hazard assessment. Um, and one might argue that, you know, an arc flash hazard assessment is really a combination of, you know, the right administrative controls, making sure you understand the energy, you, you, you've got you know, proper, proper calibration on that, and then we're guiding people on the right use of PPE. But, you know, we can get upstream of that. You know, we now have a technology in arc flash relays that allows us to massively mitigate, reduce the amount of energy dispersed in the event of an arc flash. Ultimately, uh, a, a good systemic approach to that particular risk is about redesigning equipment to largely eliminate the possibility of an arc flash causing permanent uh, disability or death that technology is available to us. And again, it's getting way upstream and, and getting much higher on the, in, in the uh, hierarchy of control.
So all of that to say, as we pull all of these pieces together, I do want to finish by helping you understand why we have the paradigm that we have at Scene Group. So we work with our organizations to help them improve the safety, the reliability, and the maintenance of energized assets. And it is our firm belief uh, that when an organization removes the silos we typically see between our safety group, our reliability group, our maintenance group, and we have them working cohesively, we have them working in unison and really collaborating to understand risk, not just from a safety point of view, but risk from an operational perspective, we get much, much better outcomes. Uh, so that's sort of the core of our philosophy and why we believe that this slightly different approach to the management of fatal and serious injury causation uh, can really move us in the right direction. Because I think when we do this, we necessarily cause our safety, our reliability and our maintenance folks to work together and collaborate on this stuff. So, you know, thank you all for joining us. I hope that's been thought provoking. And I think we've got a, a few moments here just to, I'll hand back to Barry if anybody has any questions. Great, thank you very much, Colin. And thank you, Derek, for sharing your expertise with us today. Uh, before we start the q and I wanna let everyone know about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. And your input is very important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. And let's go ahead and get to a couple questions we have that came in here. Derek, we'd like to start with you. Uh, the question is uh, for you is, how is this approach different than say simply training your people on risks and exposures? So I would say that the key difference there, um, sort of what was discussed uh, prior was, you know, we can, we can train our employees, uh, you know, all day, every day till we're blue in the face, but without the the push for baking safety into the process, uh, we're still going to see these serious injuries and fatalities that are based in uh, modes of human error, right? It, it's uh, it's definitely a growing topic within the, the safety field. You know, in uh, 2018, like I said, uh, NFPA 70E uh, added, you know, the, or put focus on Annex Q for the, uh, the, the modes of human error. And in 2021, they you know, put a bigger spotlight on it. So we're just gonna see this topic grow and grow and grow. So the more we can make safety a part of the design step when creating processes, when creating facilities, um, the less we're gonna have to rely on, you know, hoping that that training sticks or hoping that you know, somebody remembers their training Friday afternoon. And if I might add to that, Derek, I, I think the recognition that we're talking human factors in systemic design is a recognition that, um, you know, our design should consider the reality of human factors and the high probability of human failure. Uh, as I said to somebody I was talking to last week uh, at a dinner, the one thing that we can be certain of is that as human beings, we will fail. Give a human being a task to do a thousand times, it's basically guaranteed they'll fail at least once in that thousand occurrences. So let's not design a system that doesn't recognize the reality of human frailty and, and, and the flaws that we all have. Um, and that's why it's different to training. 
training people says if we train them enough, they'll do it more reliably. They may, but we're still not going to break the fundamental uh, and underlying data as it relates to uh, you know the likelihood of people failing. Great. It looks like we have one more question. Time for one more question today, gentlemen. And uh, Colin, I'll ask you this this question from one of our attendees. How do you ensure supervisors, managers, and frontline workers have visibility to the data from the analysis? You know, it's a really great question, and I'll keep the answer extremely short. We've been working on that. Um, we believe that uh, some kind of you know, visual augmented reality tool, um, something we've been working on is what we're calling a, a heat map that helps you really identify uh, energy, sources of energy and associated risk using visualization tools. Uh, we think that's probably the most powerful way of putting this information in the hands of everybody who needs it, whether it's leaders, managers, supervisors, frontline workers, people in the design shop, doesn't matter. I think that visualization of where the risk resides with the ability to, if you like, click down to understand better what that means, what it looks like and how it might play out. That real-time visualization is probably the most effective tool that we have. And I think with some of the technology now available to us, we're close to being able to put that in the hands of people real time. Great. Well, thank you, Colin. And unfortunately, folks, we have run out of time for questions today. Again, we hope you take just a few moments to share your feedback via our survey. I'd like to thank our outstanding presenters today, Derek Hale and Colin Duncan, everyone from our sponsor at Seam Group, and of course, all of you who joined us today. Once again, happy National Safety Month to everyone. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day.